Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Every heart desires a mate. So opens Married Love the 1918 best-selling manual for good matchmaking, sexual fulfillment, and family planning. Mary Stopes, author of Married Love, was the embodiment of the convergence of Victorian sex research, eugenic science, and the British women's rights movement. A headstrong, brilliant scientist, Stopes was one of the most significant figures of the modern birth control movement. From her work on flowering plant fossils in paleobotany to the hundreds of Marie Stopes International Family Planning Clinics in 37 countries today, her life, work, and legacy changed the world. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig, a History Podcast. Mary Charlotte Carmichael Stopes, oh my gosh, that's a big name, (laughs) was born in Edinburgh in 1880 to a wealthy architect with a penchant for paleobotany and a feminist activist. Oh, that's cool. So, (laughs) sorry. Those who knew her, even in her early years, commented on her headstrong nature. Though it wasn't allowed, she earned her Bachelor's of Science in just two years, graduating at the age of 21, when she went to study at the Botanical Institute in Munich on a research scholarship, she was refused the opportunity to pursue a doctorate because she didn't speak German and, of course, that little thing because she was a woman. Uh, defiantly, she learned German, worked furiously and without flagging, and was the first woman to earn a Ph.D. at the University of Munich in 1904 as magna cum laude. Even more remarkably, she earned a doctorate of science just one year later from London University, the highest degree honor a scientist can achieve in Great Britain. She was the youngest person to do so ever in the country. In 1904, she joined Manchester University's science faculty as a junior member and spent 1904 to 1910 teaching. Her research focused on plant fossils, and the biggest scientific question of the day was on the origins of angiosperms. And for those of you who aren't experts in paleobotany, those are flowering plants. Okay, thank you. Because I had no idea what that was. (laughs) Me either. I had to look it up. Angiosperms. Charles Darwin had called them an abominable mystery. The earliest traces of flowering plants were leaf impressions in Japan. The chance to study here, the chance to study there was most fortunate indeed because Japan was also home to more than just her academic interests. Ooh, intrigue, <laughs> intrigue. Kenjiro Fuji was a Japanese botanist who'd studied at Munich with Stopes. Mm, I get it now. Mm-hmm. One of the 500 male students and only, yeah, one of 500 male students and, and the only one to catch her eye and ultimately capture her heart. Aww. 
The only hang up was the wife who waited for him back in Tokyo. Of course. <laughs> Freaking course, right? Since she'd left Munich, the two had corresponded regularly, fostering their affections across two continents. And then in 1906. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And then in 1906, Fuji wrote to tell her that he was divorced. Ah. Angiosperms got her funding from the Royal Society of London to spend most of 1907 and part of 1908 in Japan studying fossils. And the hottest question in paleobotany, you know, and the hottest question in her life. In her love life. The Japanese government aided her every exploratory expedition in Japan, giving her an entourage of over 30 men. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's actually impressive. They helped her climb down into coal mines, collect samples, and haul it all over the countryside. As the Liverpool Echo reported, quote, she traversed the country from end to end and made many notable discoveries of fossils. Miss Stopes in these explorations went into parts of Japan where no white person has ever been, end quote. The angiospermosis. Angiospermosis? Angiospermosis. Angiospermosis. It's not a real word, is it? No, that's what it says. Okay. (laughs) It sounds cool. (laughs) You made that up. I did. You made that up. Yeah. All right. So those angiospermosis discoveries, which April made up, but which she made, Stopes made, were indeed the earliest flowering plant species ever discovered for many years. And while Japan was hospitable to her in every possible way, the man she'd arranged to be with was not. Fuji's affection apparently cooled while she was going back and forth from Manchester to Hokkaido. He even pretended to have leprosy to avoid her. Are you kidding me? No, this is for real. (laughs) This poor woman. When she finally returned to Manchester for good, brokenhearted and disappointed, the only consolation she sought was denied her. She'd met Robert Scott at a dance in 1904. Later, she told a friend that she thought him the most divine waltzer and reverser, though her (laughs) obsession with him was not romantic. She wanted desperately to, to expedition with him to Antarctica to study seed ferns at the southernmost point of the world. It happened that he was planning another expedition to Antarctica just as she was returning from Japan. But there was no place for a woman on that adventure, and the disappointment deepened. She turned to the only sensible option for a woman in her position. She married. Oh, my God. So why was there no place for her? Like because like, she was a woman. Okay, so they were straight up telling her she couldn't do it because yep. she was a woman. Mm-hmm. All right. Her groom was a Canadian botanist and geneticist, Reginald Gates. That's a name. Reginald Mm -hmm. Gates. And they were wed in Montreal in 1911. The marriage was a disaster. They quarreled about the house, about rent, and possibly about the sex they were not having. Mm. (laughs) Poor thing. Stopes came to the marriage with apparently no sexual knowledge. She did not realize that her husband was impotent. Well, until the mm-hmm. <laughs> until it was too late. She was frustrated beyond measure. She consulted legal experts to try and find some grounds to divorce her husband and found none. She kept digging and found her answer in the anatomy and biology sections of the university library. Her husband was unable to perform the sexual functions of married life, so she sold 
So she sued for annulment, asserting that the marriage was never consummated. At the age of 36, after being married for five years, gosh, so she was married for, oh my mm-hmm. God, that's awful. She claimed that she was still a virgin and she was granted the annulment. Not long after her frustrating and unfulfilling marriage to Gates ended, she met someone new and far more impactful. Margaret Sanger fled to England in 1915 to avoid prosecution in the United States. She'd been distributing information about birth control in her newsletter, a heinous crime under the Comstock laws that Sarah and Elizabeth talked about in our birth control episodes last spring. While in London, she met Mary Stopes, who was by then doing an intensive study of female sexuality at the British Museum. They discussed Stopes' plan for a sex manual, one that wouldn't offend the delicate sensibilities of the British British Censorship Office, but which would provide ample instruction for establishing satisfying sex lives for married, middle-class, heterosexual men and women. So that's sort of this important caveat that we want to identify that she is targeting that particular audience. But obviously this is this book is coming out of her... Frustrations? Frustrations, <laughs> disappointing uh, lack of a sex life. Sanger instructed Stopes on the rubber pessary or the Dutch cap for female contraception, basically an early diaphragm. So Mary Stopes and Margaret Sanger were affectionate friends at first, but also rivals, and they eventually grew apart, as these stories tend to go. Sanger lamented in her letters to friends that Stopes never properly credited her as having the first birth control clinic. Stopes always envied Sanger's international acclaim and publicity. In 1927, Sanger wrote about an encounter with Stopes at a genetics conference when Stopes showed up uninvited. Quote, Marie Stopes has not been invited, got cards somehow, and upon the arm of her husband swept into the drawing room to attend the meeting. Lord Dawson then changed the program and decided there should be no discussion, only questions. Mary arose with book in hand and announced that Mary Ware Dennett had written a book on the laws in USA and hoped they would all buy it and understand the situation in the USA. Juliet, darling, the book, that book, isn't she a fiend? Don't buy it or read it or look at it. It's devilish and cruel. I wrote it once to Havelock, who has the book, and asked his opinion of it. He was good enough to read it at once and wrote me that it was uninteresting, too full of details, and obviously trying to hurt me and belittle the work I have done. He said it's the old trick of politicians digging up people's past ideas and using them as a weapon. He urged me not to discuss it and would never live until my friends gave it life by buying and reading it. And of course, the Havelock mentioned in this letter is Havelock Ellis, who was one of Margaret Sanger's lovers, but also was probably the most important sexologist in Britain at the time. Um, So Mary Stopes and Margaret Sanger differed greatly on a number of key issues. For one, Sanger believed ardently in birth control access for all no matter what their socioeconomic status or ethnicity or marital status. Stopes' work on birth control access was largely aimed at the well-educated, white, middle-class heterosexuals. Stopes's sex manual, Married Love, was very much a symbol of those differences. It was intended for an educated, middle-class woman, and its cost and lexile level limited its accessibility to anyone outside of those parameters. Still, it was the first of its kind in Britain and was ready for publication in 1918. 
Unsurprisingly, no publisher would touch it. It was too controversial a topic and thus risky an investment. But Stubbs was fortunate in her second and final marital match. Marry money. Marry mm-hmm. money. She married Humphrey Verdon Rowe. Man, she knows how to pick them with the names. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1918, Rowe was a pretty cool guy, as early 20th century husbands go. He shared and suppo- supported Stopes's interest in sex education. He'd witnessed the effects of frequent childbearing on his female workforce in the manufacturing industries. He'd even tried to fund a birth control clinic at St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester, but the hospital declined the offer. Roe was a famous and very wealthy aircraft pioneer, and when they married, he was on war service in the Royal Air Force during World War I. As part of their prenuptial agreement, he gave Stopes a gift of 20,000 pounds. Holy, that's a lot even now. (gasps) 20,000 pounds plus another 10,000 to finance her activities and birth control activism. She used that money to publish her book, which was an instant bestseller and ultimately paid her husband back. While British censorship laws were a bit more lax than America's Comstock laws, it was still dangerous for a sex manual like Married Love to discuss sex explicitly. So the resulting book, which is the marriage of Stopes' research on female sexuality with her hobbyist interest in writing really bad poetry, The result is a scientific instruction manual enveloped by prose packed with metaphor and illusion. Oh, God, those are the words. <laughs> Stopes's sex manual guides the young and old married couple to sexual fulfillment, but she also counsels that married couples should start on a base of equality. Thus, when it comes to sex, both should be sharing equally in the sexual pleasure, just as they should be viewed equally in their contributions to the marriage. She recommends separate bedrooms, when possible, that a woman's intellectual growth not be stifled by marriage. She also assumes that good, middle-class boys and girls enter into marriage with no sexual knowledge. So Stopes educates in as straightforward a language as possible. Through her flowery prose, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the instructions are buried in the prose. Gotcha. But they're there. So, for example, she writes, What actually happens in an act of union should be known. After the preliminaries of love play, the stimulated penis, erect, enlarged, and stiffened, is pressed into the woman's vagina. That sounds so icky. This, pressed into? It's what it is. <laughs> Ordinarily, when a woman is not stimulated, the walls of this canal, as well as the exterior lips of soft tissue surrounding its exit, are dry and rather crinkled. And the vaginal opening is smaller than the man's extended organ. But when the woman is what is physiologically called tumescent, that is, when she is ready for union and has been profoundly stirred, These parts are all flushed by the internal blood supply and to some extent are turgid like those of the man, while there is a plentiful secretion of mucus, which lubricates the channel of the vagina. She goes on to say, In a really ardent woman, the vagina may even spontaneously open and close as though panting with longing. So powerful is the influence of thought on our bodily structure that in some people, all these physical results may be brought about by the thought of the loved one, by the enjoyment of tender words and kisses, and the beautiful subtleties of wooing. 
Stopes is blunt in her assessment of men who approach women without the appropriate wooing, that a dry vagina, when a woman has not been delivered to tumescence, is not a nice experience for anyone and can hurt a woman. Surprisingly, the buck doesn't stop there. Stopes discusses the location and function of the clitoris, the female orgasm, and the importance of sex beyond procreation. And even better, Stopes gives instructions on how to ready a woman for pleasurable sex. In correspondences with an older woman and fellow birth control activist later in life, the older woman said she knew that she'd experienced an orgasm before, but had never had the language for it. And language aplenty did Mary give. <laughs> she counseled men and women on the magic world of breasts and nipples and their connection to a woman's sexual arousal. In her very wordy fashion, she notes that some husbands are unaware that the kissing and the tender fondling with his lips of a woman's breasts is one of the first and surest ways to make her ready for complete and satisfactory a union. Even more to the point, though, again, not really to the point because she had to dance around the offending language of sex, um, she discussed the mystery of the clitoris. I'd say, though, she's pretty blunt, though. Yeah. I mean, with having to dance, this is this is pretty... She's, she's pretty hitting the nail on the head. What you need to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So she writes, Though in some instances the woman may have one or more crises, and when she says crises here, she means <laughs> orgasm. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, good. I'm having a crisis. <laughs> Jesus. Oh uh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Okay, so I'll try. I'll start that again. So though in one, know, so, though in some instances the woman may have one or more crises before the man achieves his, it is perhaps hardly an exaggeration to say that seventy or eighty percent of our married women in the middle and intellectual classes uh. are deprived of the full orgasm through the excessive speed of the husband's reactions through mm. premature ejaculation or ejaculation. What? Lashio. Like ejaculatio precox. Like, like, uh, what is it? Uh, Ejaculatio. Ah. Ejaculatio. Okay. Ejaculatio precox. Because we all needed the Latin need term yeah. to know what, what premature ejaculation Honey, is. Honey, you ejaculatio <laughs> precoxed again. <laughs> <laughs> Suck. Or through some maladjusted... Uh, or so, through some maladjustment of the relative shapes and positions of the organs. <laughs> Your organ is maladjusted. <laughs> so complex, so profound are women's sex instincts that in rousing them, the man is rousing her whole body and soul. And this takes time. More time indeed than the average husband dreams of spending upon it. True. <laughs> she knew it then, we know it now. Yet woman has at the surface a small vestigial organ called the clitoris, which corresponds morphologically to the man's penis, and which, like it, is extremely sensitive to touch sensations. This little crest, which lies interiorly between the inner lips around the vagina, erects itself when the woman is really tumescent, and by the stimulation of movement, it is intensely roused and transmits the stimulus to every nerve in her body. 
But even after a woman's dormant sex feeling is aroused and all the complex reactions of her being have been set in motion, it may take from 10 to 20 minutes of actual physical union to consummate her feeling, while one, two, or three minutes of actual union often satisfies a man who is ignorant of the art of controlling his reactions Damn. so that he may experience the added enjoyment of a mutual, simultaneous orgasm. She tells it like it is. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We want to pause here for just a moment so we can hear a word from our sponsor. Are you a collector of vinyl or are just a straight up hipster and you only listen to your music on vinyl? If so, check out revolverrecordsinc.com or check them out um, on Hurdle Avenue if you happen to be here in Buffalo, but they have a great online selection as well. He's also always buying uh, used record collections, both big and small, and he's paying top dollar. And he did tell us that he'd pay us extra if we said that he was very attractive and he's single so ladies he's very attractive and single or gentlemen what's his name his name is phil (laughs) revolver records inc.com back to the show all right so of course stopes gives instruction on family planning in this incredible book she warns against coitus interruptus basically pulling out, right? Yeah. Not because of its ineffectiveness, but because it can have a negative effect on a woman. Quote, it tends to leave the woman in midair, as it were, Hmm. to leave her stimulated and unsatisfied, and therefore it has a very bad effect on her nerves and general health, particularly if it is done frequently. Okay. She suggests that lack of sex can lead to sleeplessness, disease, loss of vitality, and more. She discusses couples for whom children, particularly too many children, were an undue burden. Though she does not give great detail on actual contraceptive methods, other than the middle of the month method, meaning avoiding sex except for when a woman is far enough from her menstrual period so as to avoid pregnancy. What do they call that now? Um, natural rhythm or yeah. rhythm rhythm, yeah. me- rhythm method. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she asserts that every child should be planned. And ultimately, that sentiment informed her future as a birth control and family planning advocate. Every baby a wanted baby was the motto for the family planning clinic in London. For a self-confessed 37-year-old virgin, she did pretty well for herself in doling out sex advice. The book was a tremendous success, and thousands of letters poured in seeking advice on contraception. Responding to these inquiries, she wrote Wise Parenthood, which included detailed drawings of the human reproductive system and a range of contraceptive information. Her primary recommendation was built on the conversation she'd had with Margaret Sanger years before. And in her book, her preferred birth control method was a cervical cap with a quinine pessary. Because quinine apparently kills malaria and kills sperm. There you go. Though some criticized her recommendation, for example, Anna Haslam, an Irish suffragist and birth control advocate, exchanged correspondences with Stokes for years and cautioned that such a device would be inaccessible to working and poor women. Right, but Stokes wasn't 
speaking to working and she wasn't women, here right, right. Yeah. and this makes so much sense because if you read a book that is telling you how to have good sex with your husband yep your next question is okay that's fine and dandy but i don't want to get pregnant mm-hmm. you know and i mean in my own research i i read so many letters of women asking those very questions yeah. like you know i, I want to have sex with my husband i want to be quote unquote a good wife or whatever but not even that like i want to have this this relationship with my husband but then what because right. i don't want to get pregnant right so okay Gotcha. Uh, So recognizing the limits of her previous publications, Stopes finally addresses the working poor with her 1919 A Letter to Working Mothers. After the birth of a stillborn child in that same year, 38-year-old Stopes decided that doctors could not be trusted, not with her health or pregnancies or that of others. Two years later, she and Rowe opened the Mother's Clinic in London. The clinic on Marlborough Street was a resounding success, serving thousands every week with women waiting in line for hours. It was staffed by midwives who dispensed birth control information and Stopes' own pro-race brand cervical cap. It was almost too successful. Stopes had to launch a fundraising campaign through her personal newsletter just to meet the demand. So, but again, this is interesting because they're still pushing the cervical cap. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, um, the arguments behind the cervical cap was a lot of working working class women didn't have the um, access to like a private bathroom mm-hmm. in order to insert the diaphragm before sex. Yeah. Right. So she's mostly just paying lip service to working class women. Sounds like it. But not actually. Not, not listening to, not their, listening to their needs. needs yeah. Right. The clinic itself did not perform abortions. In fact, Stopes opposed abortion and instead focused the effort on disseminating birth control as thoroughly as possible. So in addition to the cervical cap, uh, the midwives there counseled on coitus interruptus despite Mary Love's recommendations to avoid it. And Stopes rediscovered the ancient Greek method of soaking a sponge in olive oil and using that as a contraceptive. The oil, in effect, creates a barrier through which the sperm cannot, in theory, uh, swim. Hmm. The viscosity of the oil slows or sometimes and probably, hopefully, immobilizes the little buggers. Um, (laughs) And this is obviously not the most effective measure by any means, and certainly we on this podcast do not condone the use of olive oil as a contraceptive. Um, But, yeah, please don't. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Consult your your gynecologist. Yeah. But when Mary got an idea in her head, she doubled down on it when she was challenged, which was true of things like olive oil, birth control, and other things like eugenics. Stopes loved the attention. She had long modeled herself on the style and appearance of famous dancers. She kept her curly brown hair cropped short and favored brightly colored and flowing dresses, scarves, and floppy hats. Oh, she sounds fabulous. Mm -hmm. Her success and fame really peaked from the launch of Married Love to about 1925 when her limelight began to fade. Stopes was a household name in the British Empire during those times. Children sang a nursery rhyme as they skipped rope on the playgrounds. Janie Janie, full of hopes, read a book by Mary Stopes, but to judge from her condition, she might have read the wrong edition. <laughs> oh, my God. I freaking love it. And it's funny. You know, I just want to say, like, both Stopes and Sanger mm-hmm. in their biographies seem to be really self-absorbed women. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's interesting. Like, yeah. 
And yet they do so much incredible work. Oh, they do. Yeah. The world. Please don't let me like take away from the work that they've done, but also just like as personal people. I mean, I guess that just again, it's one of those kind of um, hero worship. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Okay. Kate Fisher and Simon Sretzer have done a great deal of work through oral histories dealing with sex and sexuality in the UK between 1920 and 1960. Many of their respondents discuss the significance of Stopes' publications in their lives. For example, Gill, who was born in 1920, said, Oh, my mother gave me a book before I was married. My Mary Stops, I think it was. Stops, what she called. Stops. Stopes? I read that, and she did an enormous amount of good because it was not a subject that was discussed anywhere. Similarly, Hugh and Angela talked about how married love changed their marriage for the better. She didn't know anything about it when she got married, said Hugh. If I didn't know about birth control, she wouldn't have known about it. We'd end up have, we'd have finished up with a big family again. I had that book, Mary Stopes. I bought that. It's maybe still up in the loft. To which Angela chimed in, I think it probably taught me because I was very innocent. That's fascinating. So that's actually the male saying that he bought it, Mm -hmm. getting ready for marriage. Yeah, that's cool. Stopes' greatest legacy is far and away the clinics she opened. The mother's clinic moved to central London in 1925. And then she opened clinics in Leeds in April 1934, Aberdeen in October 1934, Belfast in October 1936, Cardiff in October 1937, and Swansea Swansea. Swansea in January of 1943. This network of clinics developed into the Mary Stopes International, a non-governmental organization that had ties to some 5,000 outreach centers around the world. Her work provided birth control and family planning access to thousands of women in her time and thousands more since. But like Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, Stopes was more than the sum of her sex manual and birth control clinic. Like many of the sexologists, leading scientists, and intellectuals of her day, Stopes was also deeply involved in the emerging eugenics movement. She founded the Society for Constructive Birth Control and Racial Progress, and it was one of the leaders at the Second International Eugenics Conference, which was held in New York City. Alexander Graham Bell was the honorary president, and according to the Eugenics Review, under American leadership and dominance, the work of eugenicists disrupted by World War I in Europe was to resume. And just an interesting side note, Bell was deaf, and he was a leader in the movement to teach lip reading to deaf students, as opposed to sign language um, in America, because he believed that it would, quote, normalize um, deaf students more. And this was actually against what many deaf advocates wanted, oralists like Bell influenced by the new ideas of racial hierarchy and evolution, saw sign language as a primitive primordial jargon. In order to truly integrate the deaf into the mainstream, um, people like him argued, the deaf would have to learn to read lips and speak English in order to seamlessly blend into the dominant culture. Oralism highlighted fears of racial backtracking and movements toward an American melting pot. So it it makes sense that he was part of the eugenics movement uh, during this time. While there was no official legislation ever passed in Britain, Stopes and her fellow British eugenicists were essential to the more subtle policies and practices that supported the health and improvement of the population. 
some states like Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway passed compulsory sterilization laws in the early 1930s. And what we mean by that is what it sounds like. These states were taking people they considered uh, problematic to the population and forcing them to be sterilized. Mm -hmm. Key figures like H.G. Wells, the Huxleys, as an Aldous author of Brave New World, um, and his brother and the evolutionist and first director of UNESCO, Julian, and Mary Stopes spread eugenic goals and efforts in their individual projects and collaborative works. For prominent British intellectuals like the Huxleys, Stopes, Wells, and Stopes's husband, Roe, birth control would lead to a better population. A better population would serve king, crown, and empire. Stopes felt so passionate about the movement and the power of birth control that she quit her job at the university to focus full-time on the birth control clinic in 1920. The eugenics movement was, of course, an international conversation. Marissa and Averill talked about this a bit in their episode on fascism and uteruses last spring. How the Nazis really tainted the eugenic movement permanently with their employment of a racist agenda of negative eugenic practices like forced sterilization, homosexual re-education, and euthanasia of mentally and physically disabled Germans. And it's true that a lot of the discussion about eugenics was less common in the public forum, but it did not go away with the Nazi taint. Disability historians even argue that the American eugenics movement didn't slow down after the Nazis, but continued just as strong. Um, For example, look at the forced and coerced sterilization of Native American and black women in the 20th century. The eugenic movement was founded by Francis Galton. Charles Darwin's cousin, who was influenced by Darwin's 1859 publication on the origin of species. Darwin himself never dared to take his discussion of evolution and natural selection to the issue of the human race. On the other hand, he did little to combat the social Darwinist movement as it took shape. Stopes actually met Galton when she was young, and like many young up-and-coming scholars in the science community, she was undoubtedly awed by the famous man and his radical ideas. Eugenics manifests in two general approaches, positive and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics generally refers to providing health care and support for mothers and infants, um, as well as genetic counseling for who you'd be suited to procreate with, and rewarding particular individuals for procreating. Negative eugenics, as we've already noted, relies on curbing certain populations' ability to procreate through birth control, compulsory abortions and sterilizations, and anti-misogenation laws, anti-interracial marrying. Eugenic societies like Stopes's constructive birth control and racial progress were widespread across Europe uh, and America, with most starting in the late 19th century. Basically, if you were somebody, you probably belonged to a eugenic society. Yeah, I think we can't um, overstate that enough, that this was pretty um, uh, cutting edge in in science at the time. Yeah, 
Margaret Sanger also moved in and out of eugenic uh, society circles. Again, birth control and access to it was seen as a measure to improve the overall population. Smaller families meant that fewer people had to share resources. Women who aren't constantly pregnant or nursing can live better, more educated, healthier lives. Mm -hmm. And the cumulative factor will ease the burden on the planet, society, and individual families. Sanger's mother died a very early death. And Sanger blamed her poor health um, on having 11 children and multiple miscarriages throughout her life. So that was one of kind of the motivating factors behind Sanger's activism. And while there are overtones of her eugenic ideas in both married love and wise parenthood, the eugenicist in Mary Stopes shone in her newsletter, The Birth Control News. In an editorial from July 1922, Stopes wrote... Sterilization of the unfit raises a hornet's nest, but no one worries at all about the daily sterilization now going on of the fit. Young married men of the professional classes are today often forced by conditions to remain sterile, though they passionately desire the healthy children they could have if they did not have hordes of defectives to support in one way or the other. Stopes was a proponent of the forced sterilization movement which gained a widespread popularity in a number of European countries and American states in the 1920s and 30s. Britain never implemented or authorized that kind of eugenic action, unlike Finland or Czechoslovakia, which even came even later to this party. The Czechs launched their sterilization program in the 1970s. Oh my gosh. And cool. sterilized 90,000 women. Holy, I did not know that. 1970s. 1970s. 90,000 women before the program was shut down in the fall of the communist regime there. Mm -hmm. So in that quote from Stokes' editorial, she's arguing against those who asserted that forced sterilization didn't belong in Britain. She's saying that those who bristle against this measure don't seem to be paying attention to the social ills that are created by not sterilizing people. Mm. Young men can't go find suitable partners and have happy little white British families because they have to work to pay taxes to support the broods of poor and sickly and unwanted children of those who should be sterilized. Yeah, that's some scary business right there. Mm -hmm. So it's probably fair to say then that Mary Stopes was not a big fan of the welfare state that Britain was expanding in the early 1920s. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the eugenicist publication was her mouthpiece to discuss her views on racial inferiorities. She described the Italians as a low-grade race, and threads of anti-Semitism garnished the magazine. She was particularly convinced that the degenerative and defective should be sterilized. Her eugenicist views even led to estrangement from her only child. When Harry Rowe Stopes endeavored to marry a woman who wore glasses, Mary Stopes objected loudly and persistently. She apparently shuddered to think that such a trait would be passed down to subsequent Rowe Stopes generations. When he married the love of his life anyway, Stopes cut him out of her will. When she passed in 1958, she left the bulk of her estate to the Royal Society of Literature rather than her family. A real peach, Mary Stokes. Wow. In 1922, a Roman Catholic physician, Halliday Sutherland, wrote Birth Control, a Statement of Christian Doctrine Against the Neo-Malthusians. And Neo-Malthusians is another another name for eugenicists um, because they were concerned about the explosion of the population and how that would uh, 
challenge the Earth's resources to support the population, so we had to curb the population. That's mm-hmm. In this book, Birth Control, a Statement of Christian Doctrine Against the Neo-Malthusians, he alleged that Stopes' clinics and books were birth control experiments intended to exploit the working poor. In fact, particularly later in life, Stopes was extremely harsh toward the poor and indigent and argued that such individuals should be sterilized to prevent them from passing on their socioeconomic genetics. Still, in 1922, she launched a libel suit against Sutherland, at which both presented expert medical testimony. Stopes won the initial appeal, but Sutherland ultimately won the case when he appealed to the House of Lords. The highly publicized trial ended up working in her favor, and she seemed to relish the attention. She wrote inciting letters to the Pope and even once wrote to Henry Ford to appeal to him to aid her in her fight against the evil of the Catholic Church. Um, And we'll read you some parts of this letter because it's kind of funny. (laughs) Um, So, dear Mr. Ford... You are the only man alive I know of who has the vision and the power to do something big this world very much needs. Uh, My husband and myself founded the first birth control clinic in the British Empire, and we have had such great amount of gratitude from poor and rich and learned alike. But we have found ourselves up against immense forces of suppression and evil. The chief source of evil is the Roman Catholic hierarchy. So I am writing to ask you with all the earnestness of a fellow reformer to help us in what we will prove to be the very biggest fight in history for human health, happiness, and peace against the reactionary forces which would deprive the masses of these. You are so gloriously rich and could spare a million or two pounds so easily. Won't you send me that right now? (laughs) Holy cow! This woman's got some cojones. (laughs) Oh my god. Hmm. We'll do a, we'll talk about Henry Ford another time and his role in... He's a peach too. Yeah, In addition to publishing Roman Catholic Methods of Birth Control in 1933, which was a formal rebuttal to the accusation that her birth control clinics were experimenting on the public, her public engagements exploded, as everyone wanted to have the famous Mary Stopes speak at their events. At the same time, the church, which had helped to finance Sutherland's case against Stopes, banned her books and her film, Maisie's Marriage. British newspapers feared the Irish censors and refused to even run ads for her books. Her quarrel with Sutherland in the church turned a corner to paranoia. Late in life, she was convinced every misfortune was a Roman plot against her. She was always a bit difficult to get along with. But as she got older, Mary Stopes became unbearable. She alienated her friends, allies, and family. After 1938, when she and Verdon Rowe separated, she sunk into a deep depression, writing terrible poetry, (laughs) just terrible, and publishing books that brought on unfavorable reviews and poor sales. She was still at odds with the Catholic Church, but also the medical community and her own kin. She was racist and narcissistic, and heterosexist, and a terrible poet. And yet, she opened clinics that brought access to birth control to women who were in desperate need. She changed the lives of ignorant women like Gil and Angela with her frank and honest sex manual. 
and may have introduced the female orgasm to an entire generation of women. In 1999, maybe it comes as a surprise, but maybe not, that the Guardian readers, a British newspaper, voted her woman of the millennium. Wow. I mean, yeah, I think this is just another example that hero worship never suits us. All people, all of our heroes are flawed, and um, many of our quote-unquote heroes are straight up not good people. Mm But they can still give us good things. It's how we use those legacies that really matter. Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously we've talked about Margaret Sanger in this episode a lot. Um, And I think it goes back to that as well. Um, So Sarah and Marissa and I all volunteer for Planned Parenthood. And one of the things that we do for them is to organize these teach-ins where we um, train future activists and advocates of Planned Parenthood how to answer the hard questions because people who hate Planned Parenthood hate it in a really violent and awful way. And if you work an event, they will come up and challenge you and fight you and say, oh, Margaret Sanger, she was a eugenicist. She wanted to kill black people, all this other stuff, um, which all, of course, is not true and is a distortion of the things that she did. Like she once, yes, she once uh, gave a speech on birth control access to uh, women's society for the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. But that's because Margaret Sanger would talk to anyone and everyone about birth control. And mm-hmm. she believed that everyone had access, should have access to birth control, regardless of their beliefs, their socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, their marital status, all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Stopes? Not so much. Not so much. Also, maybe a bad person in some ways. But mm-hmm. her work is... Has, has just made astronomical changes to the lives of, of women around the world, but especially in Britain. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, because I, I actually was not that um, up on Mary Stopes. Mm-hmm. I'd heard, heard her name and, and come across her name, but because I'm an American historian, we tend to focus on our own stuff and, and not look at the rest of the world. So yeah. um, I think that actually puts so much more context into... Um, I don't know, some of the discussions that, that we've had in, in previous birth control episodes and things mm-hmm. like that. And I think this is definitely a thread. And some of the things that we talked about in this episode, we'll, we'll be picking up further and yeah. in subsequent episodes. Um, definitely Absolutely. need to look at, at, at Henry Ford a little more, mm-hmm. um, the eugenist movement a little more, and um, and kind of how that played out in uh, reform movements of the 19th and 20th century, for yes. sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well. This has been a uh, episode for Dig, yeah. a history podcast. We appreciate you listening. My name is Elizabeth Garner Masaryk. I'm Avril Earls. Make sure to follow us on all of these social medias. Yes, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. Um, you can find us at Dig underscore History for most of those places. Yeah. Um, and you can get all of our show notes for the reading suggestions at digpodcast.org. Um, what other things do we do? Yeah, send us an email, too, if you have any questions or any ideas about future episodes that you'd like to hear. Uh, We'd love to hear your suggestions, thoughts, criticism, and feedback. Yeah. And, um, hey, leave us a positive review on iTunes, because that stuff helps our ratings, yo. Yeah, please and thanks. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, 
Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. You can find show notes and further reading at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. And was the first wormit Worman. <laughs> was it you? Tell me, Grandma. Was that you or me? That was me. Okay. Let's What is that? That's, reading level? Yeah. I learned that's, that from... That's a dollar word right people. there. It's a good one. <laughs> I love that word. I use it every time I can. There you go. All right. Well, I just learned something new today. <laughs> uh, limited... Ex- blah, blah. But it did not go away with the Nazi taint. <laughs> I know. It's the funniest word. <laughs> I'm a 12-year-old, I swear. <laughs>Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.